For over 25 years, care teams have relied on Massimo set measure-through motion and low-perfusion pulse oximetry to deliver accurate SpO2 readings, even in challenging conditions where other pulse oximeters fail. Visit Massimo.com set to discover why set remains at the heart of patient safety. Hi, this is Evan Karish, Editor-in-Chief of Anesthesiology, with some highlights from the February 2022 issue as selected by our journal editors. This month's podcast will take a look at the potential of point-of-care ultrasound to help identify frail patients before surgery. This may have implications for more efficient use of resources to improve outcomes for frail patients. We'll also explore new information from a rabbit model about mechanical ventilation and lung injury. We'll discuss a clinical focus review of the safety and effectiveness of dried plasma in pre-hospital settings. And we'll close this month with a comprehensive review of molecular changes in the dorsal root ganglion in the late phase of peripheral nerve injury pain. Let's begin this month with a pilot diagnostic study that showed the potential of preoperative ultrasound measurements of quadriceps depth to assess frailty in surgical patients. Frailty is gaining recognition as a public health issue that affects all age groups, not just elderly patients. Frailty is associated with a range of adverse post-surgical outcomes. The current standard for frailty screening is computed tomography, but this is resource-intensive and it exposes patients to radiation. Dr. Cecilia Canales of the University of California, Los Angeles, led a team in exploring the ability of point-of-care ultrasound to assess frailty. The researchers measured quadriceps depth in 32 adults scheduled for major surgery who had had a computed tomography scan within 90 days. They also studied 12, 20 healthy controls. About half of the patients met criteria for frailty based on the freed phenotype. This meant that they met at least three of five criteria, unintentional weight loss, self-reported exhaustion, physical weakness based on grip strength, slow walking speed, and low physical activity. The ultrasound imaging identified frailty based on measures of quadriceps depth and psoas muscle area. The accuracy of ultrasound imaging based on area under the curve or receiver operating characteristics was 0.8 for quadriceps depth and 0.88 for psoas muscle area. An area of one would mean a perfect prediction. The researchers also examined how well frailty measures predicted some secondary outcomes. They found that quadriceps depth was associated with unplanned admission to a skilled nursing facility, as well as with postoperative delirium. The authors emphasized the need to identify frail patients and to plan accordingly to reduce adverse outcomes. 
They also said that knowing a patient's frailty status prior to surgery can guide anesthetic management. They noted that their results support the value of bedside ultrasound to identify frailty, but larger studies than just this pilot are clearly needed. An editorial by Dr. Daniel McIsaac accompanies this article. Dr. McIsaac emphasized the challenges of assessing frailty, but also questioned whether the resources needed for point-of-care ultrasound might detract from patient care. He also noted that the muscle images captured by ultrasound are more specific to sarcopenia. But he described the study as a foundation for further research to better identify patients with true frailty according to the Freed phenotype. Check out the full article for free in this month's issue. And also, check out the infographic, which summarizes the results of this article. Next, we'll take a look at a randomized trial to investigate botulinum toxin as an intervention for complex regional pain syndrome. Complex regional pain syndrome involves a combination of sensory and vasomotor and pseudomotor or edema symptoms, as well as motor or trophic symptoms in some cases. Although data from previous studies show that sympathetic blocks can be effective, studies of this strategy in clinical practice are limited. Botulinum toxin has become popular for pain management in addition to its cosmetic uses. The authors of this study, Dr. Youngche Yu of Seoul National University Hospital in Korea and colleagues, tested the hypothesis that lumbar sympathetic ganglion block with botulinum toxin would provide longer sympathetic blockade compared to local anesthetics in patients with complex regional pain syndrome. The authors assigned 48 patients with unilateral lower extremity complex regional pain syndrome to a botulinum toxin group or a control group. The primary outcome of the study was a temperature change of the affected foot compared to the unaffected foot at one month after the procedure. Although both patients in, in both groups showed a higher temperature in the blocked foot compared to the contralateral foot, the botulinum toxin group had a significantly greater temperature from baseline compared to the controls, and this persisted at three months. In an accompanying editorial, doctors Vanita Singh and Stephen Cohen described the study as conceptually appealing but they also questioned the choice of temperature change as the primary outcome, given the lack of data to support a correlation between temperature rise and pain relief. Therefore, they proposed that other mechanisms might have contributed to the apparent analgesia. They concluded that the more studies involving more precise injections would be needed for widespread adoption of botulinum toxin for pain management in clinical practice. However, they emphasized the need to recognize the 800-pound gorilla in the room, which was the effect of industry sponsorship on clinical trials. This article is available for free in this month's issue.
Our next clinical study is a pooled analysis of data on dexmedetomidine clearance. Dexmedetomidine is approved for the intensive care unit and for periprocedural sedation, and multiple models have been published to guide dexmedetomidine dosing. However, many of these models underpredict plasma concentrations and particularly at higher doses, and they include only linear kinetics, according to Dr. Ricardo Alvarez Jimenez of Amsterdam University Medical Center in the Netherlands. Dr. Alvarez Jimenez led a team in building a three-compartment mammillary model with nonlinear elimination clearance to predict plasma dexmedetomidine concentrations. In a simulation study, the model showed that predicted plasma concentrations similar to the Hanavort linear pharmacokinetic model at concentrations up to 2 nanograms per mil. But they also found that dexmedetomidine clearance decreased with increasing plasma concentrations. But the question was why? Cardiac output did not explain the decrease. The authors proposed that dexmedetomidine might decrease liver blood flow to cardiac output ratio as dexmedetomidine concentrations increased. And this might account for the lack of correlation between cardiac output and dexmedetomidine clearance and explain decreasing clearance at higher dexmedetomidine doses. The new model may allow for more accurate dosing, but more studies of the mechanisms of nonlinearity are needed. In an accompanying editorial by doctors Tom Henthorne, Tom Krejci, and Michael Avram, uh, the authors suggested that the current study was limited by failing to include cardiac output data in their pharmacokinetic model. They added that the study results cannot definitively identify the cause of the concentration-dependent elimination clearance, although they did cite the inverse relationship between hepatic blood flow and dexmedetomidine concentrations as the most likely cause. You can access this article for free in this month's issue. Now, let's turn to an animal study of how mechanical ventilation might contribute to lung injury. Community-acquired pneumonia remains a leading cause of mortality, even when antibiotics are used early in the disease. Previous research suggested that mitochondrial depletion and dysfunction may play a role in the lung damage that's seen in some pneumonia patients that are treated with mechanical ventilation. Dr. Matthew Blot of University Hospital in Dion, France, and colleagues conducted a study in rabbits to determine whether mechanical ventilation led to immune and mitochondrial dysfunction. Animals undergoing adverse mechanical ventilation received human umbilical cord-derived mesenchymal stem cells and or ceftaroline or sodium chloride four hours after a pneumococcal challenge. The primary outcome was 24-hour survival. The authors found that high-pressure adverse mechanical ventilation had significantly lesser survival compared with spontaneous breathing. Treatment with stem cells, ceftaroline, in a combination resulted in greater survival. The authors noted that the adverse mechanical ventilation settings used in the study can't be considered clinically relevant, 
And they also caution that their animal model is far removed from acute respiratory distress syndrome in humans. But they also conclude that their findings do open the door for more research into uh, potentially protective mechanical ventilation to correct immune and mitochondrial dysfunctions in severe pneumonia. Check out this article. It's free in this month's issue. We'll move next to a clinical focus review on the use of dried plasma in pre-hospital and austere environments. We know that early plasma transfusion can improve survival in cases of traumatic hemorrhage, but the logistics of using fresh frozen plasma remain quite a challenge in many settings. As freeze-dried plasma, also known as lyophilized plasma, does become more widely available, uh, more research is needed on its safety and its clinical effectiveness. Dried plasma products may be stored at room temperature, so they are more readily available for transfusion than frozen plasma. A team led by Dr. Anthony Pusateri of Naval Medical Research Unit San Antonio at Fort Sam Houston in Texas reported current use of these products. Retrospective data from patients treated with French lyophilized plasma showed that patients given the lyophilized plasma in military settings received it significantly sooner and maintained higher plasma to red cell ratios than patients given fresh frozen plasma. Another product, Lyoplasm W, has been used in Germany with more than 230,000 units distributed between 2007 and 2011. The authors cited several retrospective studies in which Lyoplasm W demonstrated safe and easy pre-hospital administration. The product Bioplasma FDP has been used in South Africa since 1996 and reports show minimal adverse effects and similar safety to fresh frozen plasma. The authors emphasize the need for prospective studies and the need to increase awareness of lyophilized plasma as a treatment option in trauma patients. Next, we have another clinical focus review, this one on the topic of heparin-induced thrombocytopenia. Heparin-induced thrombocytopenia, sometimes referred to as HIT, is a severe disease that causes death in approximately 10% of patients who develop it during a hospital stay. Studies of the incidence of heparin-induced thrombocytopenia have been inconsistent, and the condition may be underdiagnosed. Dr. Andreas Koster of Ruhr University in Germany led colleagues in a review of the mechanisms of heparin-induced thrombocytopenia. The review addressed diagnosis, laboratory testing, changing to another anticoagulant, and requesting a confirmation assay. The authors explained that thrombocytopenia is caused by the formation of IgG antibodies in response to very large complexes of heparin and platelet factor four. They note that the two main characteristics of heparin-induced thrombocytopenia are timing and decrease in platelet count. They suggest that heparin may directly activate platelets to cause this disease, 
which is relatively moderate in most cases. They also added that functional washed platelet assays remain the gold standard for diagnosing heparin-induced thrombocytopenia. Positive results in the immunoassay correlate with positive reactions in functional assays, but immunoassays are variable. Patients with heparin-induced thrombocytopenia can be treated with argatroban, but bivalirudin has also been used off-label. These authors conclude that heparin-induced thrombocytopenia does remain a challenge, but it should be considered in hospitalized patients on heparin if a decreased platelet count or thrombosis is observed. Let's take a look now at a review article on the impact of quantitative neuromuscular monitoring on postoperative outcomes. Quantitative monitoring devices are not new, and recent studies have shown that quantitative monitoring during surgery results in less risk of residual neuromuscular blockade, whether it's in the operating room or the post-anesthesia care unit. Dr. Glenn Murphy, an anesthesiologist in Chicago, and Dr. Soren Bruhl of the Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville, conducted a literature review of clinical trials that evaluated the published evidence in order to evaluate intraoperative quantitative monitoring and postoperative outcomes. The authors identified stages and instances of neuromuscular block and described several techniques for quantitative monitoring, including electromyography, acceleromyography, and kinemiography, and outlined the pros and cons of each approach. Mechanomyography, which measures muscle force directly, is not suitable for clinical practice, and it's not available commercially. The study findings were limited by factors such as small sample sizes and inconsistent time points for measuring postoperative residual neuromuscular blockade. But the data suggests that intraoperative quantitative monitoring may also improve recovery from anesthesia and reduce postoperative morbidity. Ultimately, the evidence supports the use of intraoperative quantitative monitoring to maximize recovery of neuromuscular strength after surgery. Use of quantitative monitoring has the potential to improve patient safety, but training and education are essential for success. And we'll close this month with a review article on the challenging topic of chronic pain. We know that the dorsal root ganglion is a potential target in the management of chronic pain, but little is known about changes in the dorsal root ganglion at the molecular level. A better understanding of these changes could eventually help develop more targeted and effective treatments. Merman Shalaki and colleagues at Leiden University Medical Center in the Netherlands conducted a review of 168 studies that used a rodent model to examine injury-induced pain in the dorsal root ganglion of rodents at three weeks after an injury. The authors identified 309 molecules that were associated with changes in protein levels in the dorsal root ganglia during the chronic phase of an injury in the peripheral nerve. 99 molecules showed significant increases in at least one study, 
And the molecules that most frequently showed significant increases were ATF3, TRIP-V1, GFAP, and MCH2. 30 molecules showed significant decreases in at least one study, and these were mainly CGRP, IL-10, and MOR. The authors then presented a thorough explanation of the molecular processes that occur in the dorsal root ganglion during the chronic phase of injury in rodent models. They divided the processes into the following areas. Ion channels, immune system, neuropeptides, intracellular neuronal changes, cell-to-cell and cell matrix interactions, and satellite glial cells. The authors cited their main limitations in comparing results as the lack of homogeneity between studies, variation in time points for quantifying molecular changes, and variation in methods used to quantify those molecules. They identified molecular classes that change after nerve injury, but studies are really needed that include both male and female animals, and involve longer survival times and high-throughput analysis to make these results potentially more relevant. If you want to delve deeper, the authors included a lot of supplementary tables from the raw data of the various studies and a schematic overview of the molecules and mechanisms along with their review. Now, you can always find these studies and others, and commentary on our journal website, the Anesthesiology website. If you're interested in learning more about submitting an article to Anesthesiology, please submit, see our submission advice page on the journal website. The page offers insights into our editor's expectations and a blueprint for creating uh, more successful manuscripts. As always, Thank you for listening to the podcast, and thank you for your support of anesthesiology. I hope you find the information presented to be helpful as it um, guides and, and improves your clinical practice, and I look forward to sharing more important research with you next month. Discover the difference with Massimo Set Pulse Oximetry. Since its introduction in 1995, Massimo Set has been shown in over 100 independent and objective studies to outperform other pulse oximetry technologies. Visit massimo.com/set to learn why Set is trusted by healthcare providers all over the world.